Well, we all like to have people that we can look up to, people that we would love to be like, people that we would love to model ourselves after, people who seem to us to have it all together, people that have made the right choices in life and seem, at least from the outside, to be successful. Lots of times it's um, someone outside of, of our own world, maybe someone famous, uh, an actor, or an actress, a, a musician, a sports figure, a successful business person. And when we find someone like that, we, we read all about that person's successes. We, in fact, we devour anything that we can get a hold of that talk about that celebrity, that famous person, that successful person. And sometimes it's not just someone famous, but someone that's in our vocation or, or in our particular area of interest. So if you're in sales, you, you might find someone that's successful and try to pattern yourself after that person. What, what is it that, that they've done that make them successful? How do they get their, their clientele? And then how do they sell the product? If you're into photography, you look to someone who has received acclaim and, and try to figure out what makes him or her good at that particular craft. If you're a stay-at-home mom, there are... These days, there are lots of weblogs out there of moms who seem to have it all figured out. And you follow them, and you read them, and, and try to apply what they've done and what they've learned into your life. If we're leaders, we like to hear from certain other leaders. Or we like to read about uh, leaders in history, people like, well, there's lots of them, people like Winston Churchill or, or Abraham Lincoln or whoever it might be. As a pastor, I have certain preachers that I look up to and try to pattern myself after. Having models that have succeeded in a certain area help us become better at our craft. They help us to, to get to places and to arrive at levels of expertise that we would not otherwise get to. They, they've made it. And if they can make it to that level, so can others. Maybe even me. That's the way we think. But oftentimes, those very leaders and, and models can also let us down. Those same people that we look up to fail in one way or another. Sometimes they're shown not to be as uh, skilled as we thought they were. Sometimes they get caught taking a shortcut. Sometimes they commit a crime. Sometimes they have a moral failure in another area of their life. Sometimes they just get shown to be a fraud. When that happens, it can really throw us for a loop. Those people that we looked up to, in some cases, those people that we trusted to help us, have let us down. They're not quite who we thought they were. Even though they still may have helped us succeed and get to another level, somehow our view of them has been tainted. Well, in the Jewish religion, religious system, there was a, a man that was looked up at. And this man wasn't just someone that they looked up to as an example or as a model of some kind, although he was that. They would have had a lot of respect for his high position. But he was someone that could help them get somewhere. And he was someone that could work on their behalf. This man was called a, the priest, or sometimes the high priest. Now, in our day and age, uh, that whole concept of a priesthood is kind of foreign to us. 
Although in, in the Roman church today, they still have priests and they function in somewhat of a similar role in that, in that some things or, or some of the sacraments that they believe uh, have some power aren't valid unless they are administered by a priest. But back in the Jewish religions, religious system, the, the priest was in a very privileged position. He was respected by the people. He was or he held the highest religious position that there was within that system. And he was respected because he was in a position of being able to help the ordinary people. He held all the the qualifications that were necessary in order to bring people to the one true and living God. The people couldn't enter the place that symbolized God's presence, but the priest could. And he was important because he could go there on their behalf. The high priest, for that reason, held a place, a position of respect. But among the people that received the Bible letter called Hebrews, the one that you've got your Bible turned open to, there was a a tide that was sort of rising up of people that wanted to go back to that system. This group of people had become Christians, and they had left that system, but as Christians, they were being persecuted. They were under the threat of physical harm, and a segment of those people thought, you know, maybe that wasn't so bad back there. We had direct access to God through the priest, but now he just seems to be silent. Back there, the Romans pretty much left us alone, and now we're being opposed, and we're being attacked even by the Jews. Why don't we just go back to that old system? But this writer to Hebrews comes along and says, hold on, if it's a high priest that you really want, you've already got one. This Jesus that you followed when you became a Christian meets all the qualifications that you are looking for. In fact, he not only meets them, he far surpasses them. He's way better. You notice that this is a theme in Hebrews already. Jesus is better. In fact, he's able to do things that the other high priest is unable to do. He is unique. And so if it's a high priest you want, stay right here. Don't go anywhere. This is the one that you really need to look up to. And he will not let you down ever. This theme of Jesus as a high priest is really the main thrust of the letter to Hebrews. It's, it's already shown up here and there as we've gone through this in the first four chapters of Hebrews. In fact, right at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is called there the great high priest. But starting here in chapter 5, he starts to develop a little more and takes, it takes it really right through to the end of chapter 9 and even at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 10. And so even though we're, we're farther removed from that, we're going to try and draw out some implications for us and for our church. Why is it important that one of Jesus' roles, besides him being so many other things for us, is as a high priest? Why should we look up to him in that particular role, in that particular function? Well, what really lies at the heart of it all is that we have some things in our lives that only God can take care of. We've got some huge issues going on that we, that we have to take up with, with God. And yet we can't get there. I'm sure there are a lot of things you would like to take up with our Prime Minister. 
He's got the power to change the amount of taxes that you have to pay. He's got the power to change the interest rates. He's got the power to change laws that affect you. He even has the power to take away your speeding ticket. But the problem is that you can't really take that up directly with him. It's an accessibility issue. You've got to go through all these filters and all these levels of government to be able to get to the prime minister. But your issue with God is not anything resembling a tax issue. In fact, it's actually your own issue. It's a, it's a sin issue. It's actually that very issue that doesn't allow you to get to a holy God. And so you need to get that taken care of if you want to have any hope for eternal life. You need to get to him or else you've got a problem. So the question we need to ask is, can we get there? And if so, how do we get there? Well, in the Old Testament, God set up a system where sin could be dealt with. And it involves priests taking all kinds of gifts and sacrifices and offerings to a place that symbolized God's presence. It was a way of taking one's sin issue up with God, literally. But from God's point of view, it was never intended to be a permanent solution. It was meant to be a lead-up to something and to someone that would forever deal with the issue. But even from a human perspective, the system had one major flaw, and I hesitate in calling it that because God designed it, but it was the fact that the priest was a sinner too. He had the same issue that he needed to take up to God and that he needed to take up with God. And so in God's wonderful provision and amazing Uh, creativity, this system included a way for the priest to deal with both the sins of the people and for his own sins. And you can read all about that in Leviticus chapter 16. talks there about Aaron taking up sacrifices for the sins of the people and for himself. But even though there was that provision in the system, it still had that flaw of an imperfect priest. And so sacrifices had to keep happening all the time because, because sin kept on happening all the time on the midst of the, in the midst of the people and on behalf of the priest himself. And so when these Hebrews here, now fast forward to Hebrews chapter 5, during that time, just immediately a few years after the resurrection of Jesus, when these Hebrews wanted to go back to that system, the author steps in and says, hold on, in Jesus Christ now you have a permanent solution. And here's how. Jesus, besides everything else that he is and everything else that he does, is also a high priest. And in his role as a high priest, he, he, he fills all the missing pieces in the old system. He fulfills them, and he fills them. And that takes us to Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. Now, I wanted to spend a little bit more time than usual introducing this passage because we really have to start to to get our heads around this, to make sure we understand why the author spends all this time feeling like he needs to tell them that Jesus is the great high priest. And so follow, as I long, follow along as I read chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now sometimes we might wonder, especially coming out of this Easter season, as you've heard all the, the, the story of the, the passion relived, the story of the suffering of Jesus uh, uh, and not only his suffering, but his, his death. And then as you hear about Easter season and the fact that Jesus was resurrected, the fact that he's alive today, you might wonder still, is Jesus really what I need? How can he deal with, with all my struggles and, and my issues and, and the weaknesses and, and even those sins that I can't seem to shake? those ones that I'm fully aware of and and maybe even ask for forgiveness for, but then I just do them again. How does Jesus answer my deepest needs? Well, this is telling these people back in that time and us in our time that we need to consider the fact that Jesus is also our high priest. And and actually, that we need to look no further than the resurrection to see that Jesus will take us right up to God and literally take up our major issue with God, namely our own sin issue. The beauty of this passage is how Jesus is the one that can help us with that. He perfectly qualifies as the one that can take us to God. And on top of that, he's worthy of our devotion and looking up to because he will never let us down. And even further than that, he has dealt with the issue forever. He's a priest forever, a priest of a different order. But he starts by looking back at that old system and by looking at who the human high priest was that they were being attracted to. And he reminds them here of the purposes and qualifications of a priest, but he's setting all that up to remind them of the fact that Jesus not only meets those requirements as well, he meets all the requirements of the priest that they longed for and that were being attracted to, but he far surpasses them as well. You see there in verse 1 how every high priest is chosen among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. This is important because the high priest could identify with the people in the community. He was taken from among them. 
And because of that, he could act on behalf of men in relating to God. God designed that whole system in the Old Testament that the priest came from a certain family line, the line of Aaron, which came from the tribe of Levi. Look down at verse 4. No one has this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so this was not a self-appointed office. It was God-appointed. And you can read all about God's very precise and exact design, not only for the temple or for the tabernacle that was being built, but even for the priesthood. Acts, or Exodus, 26, sorry, Exodus 28 and 29 is where you'll see that. But he says here, they were chosen from among men. Well, now think about Jesus. Jesus was also appointed by God, and he was also chosen from among men, wasn't he? He became a man. Jesus, by God's design and and plan in the incarnation, beautifully fulfilled that qualification. But he not only fulfilled it, he exceeded that qualification. We'll see that right away. But look at what comes next here. The high priest's role was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, so there's the issue. The, the priest could take up our sin issue with God. The offerings and sacrifices atone for sins. But notice here that it wasn't just a cold-hearted, um, dutiful, unemotional job that the priest had. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. There's an emotional attachment there. There was a a gentleness, you could say even a pastoral attachment. Why? tells us here, since he himself was beset with weakness. There was an attachment because the priest understood sin. In fact, he was a sinner too. And he had to offer sacrifices, like we said, not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sins. tells us that right there in verse 3. But in that attachment that the priest had with the people, we also see Jesus. Even though he, thankfully, was not beset with sin, he was beset with weakness in a way, and, yet he, and, and he's also still able to deal gently with us. He is able to sympathize, we, look, we learned back in chapter 4, and have compassion on us. It's actually because he is perfect and not beset with sin that he can deal gently with us. It's because he was perfect that he, way more than we do even, feels our weakness. You see, we are sinners by nature, and so sin is in some ways our natural trajectory. We naturally drift into sin. But Jesus was perfect, and so when he came into contact with sin and and, and through his temptations, it was almost an assault to his perfect character. One Bible scholar writes that, quote, Jesus' whole life was one of temptation. He was the most fullest and most vivid personality that this world has ever known. And the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of human temptation. You understand that? When you're perfect, you feel imperfection even more, right? No one on this earth, that continues the quote, says, before or since has ever been through such spiritual desolation and human anguish. 
For this reason, he can help us in our moments of temptation. He's aware of our needs because he has experienced to the full the pressures and testings of life in a godless world. End quote. And so it's for that reason that Jesus can deal gently with us, with the ignorant and the wayward, those who commit unintentional sins and those who continue to drift from God, who go the other way. And he can deal gently with us, not because he was a sinner like the priest was, but because he was perfect. He actually is exactly what you need. He can relate to you and to your struggles. One of the main ways that Jesus was tempted, I think, was to abandon God's plan for him of dying on the cross. You see this in one story pretty clearly. Do you remember when Peter told Jesus that he would never abandon him? Everyone else might abandon you, but I'll never abandon you. From the outset, sounds like a very noble thing to say. We think, good job, Peter, way to go. But do you remember how Jesus responds? Jesus says, after this noble thing to say by Peter, he says to him, get behind me, Satan. I think, what? what? What's that? Why would he say that? Well, Jesus saw right through those words. Peter had great intentions. But Jesus saw that as a subtle attack from Satan himself. What was the attack on? It was, the, it was an attack, it was, a, it was a subtle sort of temptation to abandon the plan. God's plan. And to abandon that plan would be to abandon everything the Father sent him to do. We wouldn't have Good Friday and the resurrection if Jesus had abandoned the plan. And so Jesus was tempted beyond what we can fathom. And he therefore deals with us gently. Not because he's a fellow sinner, but because he knows our temptation. He identifies with us in our temptations. And so in verses 1 to 4, he talks about the Jewish high priest and how he was qualified to act as the high priest, but he's already indirectly pointing to Jesus. And then in verse 5, he now talks about Jesus directly. He tells us how Jesus qualifies to be our high priest and meets and, and then surpasses the qualifications of the Jewish high priest. Says there, so also Christ. Just like the high priest, so also Christ didn't exalt himself to that position. He was appointed by God. It was not a self-appointment. But Jesus was appointed automatically through his family line. In fact, Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi at all. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so then we ask, how does Jesus qualify? Well, it's because he's appointed by God. He was appointed, actually, through, it says here, through direct command from God. It was a, it was a divine installation. Look at verse 5 and 6. The author goes back here and he quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and he applies it to Jesus. It says, you are my son. And then from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. This is like God talking to his son and to his son Jesus and appointing him through his voice. So it wasn't just chosen among men. It was a direct divine appointment. Now, now the writer is going to get into that later in this letter. So for now, this whole Melchizedek business. So we'll talk about that later. But just for now, notice that this is God appointing Jesus as a high priest. 
But it's in a totally different line than the Jewish high priest. It's not in the line of Aaron, who is from the tribe of Levi, but it is in the line of, a, of an obscure, mentioned only one other time, well, two other times in Scripture, Psalm 110, which is quoting from Genesis 14. So it's this really mysterious sort of judge and also a king named Melchizedek. So notice that Jesus surpasses the other high priest. The author is saying, Jesus is your true high priest. If it's a high priest you want, you can't do any better than Jesus. He is appointed directly by God himself, surpassing that whole system of all the other priests that were appointed through Aaron. You are my son. You are a priest. Well, let's keep going. Verse 7 really is an amazing verse. Look again at chapter 5 or 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now there's so much in that verse and I'm not going to parse every single word here, although I'd love to. But it's talking about the time that Jesus walked on the earth. You know, in the days of his flesh, right? This is his incarnation. And so, so Jesus was always praying, it says here. But it looks like here that it's talking specifically about the time in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, just before Jesus was betrayed, where he was praying intently. Remember that story? He, 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 he was praying and it seemed like sweats of blood were dropping off of him. Jesus offered up, there's that priestly language there, Jesus offered up, prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, do you remember what Jesus was praying in the garden? If you can't remember, just look at Matthew 26, verse 39. He was praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So it looks like Jesus is praying that God would save him from death. If it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Well, how did God answer that prayer? Did he save Jesus from death? At first glance, it looks like he didn't. It looks like the answer was no, at least to the first part of the prayer. To the second part, not as I will, but as you will, the answer was yes, right? Jesus ultimately entrusted himself to God. And it's right there that we see the priestly work of Jesus for us on our behalf. You know why? Because you cry out to God too. I know you do. Maybe you've prayed for a baby and then there was a miscarriage. Maybe you've cried out to God to heal you or a loved one from cancer. Maybe you've cried out to God for a child who has wandered far away from God. Maybe you're single and you've been crying out to God with loud cries and tears for a spouse. Maybe you've been crying out to God with prayers and supplications for a job. And yet, in the end, you have to submit to God's will. Now think about what this is saying. This is saying that Jesus knows all of that and understands all of that. 
Ligon Duncan says, quote, Isn't that one of the great challenges in life? To keep believing, to keep trusting, and to submit yourself to the will of God when you don't like what's happening to you, when you don't understand what's happening to you, and when you're not getting the answer to prayer that you want? This is mind-boggling, he says. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus can relate to you there. That he knows what it's like to get a no and to submit himself to that. When we're in the middle of those hard uh, and and, and really gut-wrenching places, when you're in those places, you can look to a high priest who has been there, who identifies with you, who relates with you. And of course, we have to add here that ultimately God did save Jesus from death, didn't he? But he did that after the cross, at the resurrection, which is where we were last Sunday. More about that in verse 9. But look at verse 8. just keeps going here. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, just have to say here, that this doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient and then he learned obedience later on. No, it means that, like we said before, his faithfulness to God, his obedience was tested and challenged throughout his life and especially at his death. But through all of that, it's an important word there, through all of that, his obedience stayed perfect. You know, we, we naturally try to avoid suffering. But Jesus was obedient as he went through it, even through to his death on a cross. Again, we can look to our high priest. If anyone understands the things that you are suffering with, it is Jesus. And so this is saying that because you are attached to our high priest through faith, it should give you courage to stay faithful to God through whatever it is that you are experiencing. And we enter this story here in that exact way. Did you notice? By staying faithful. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect... So now we're talking about him being raised from the dead and exalted, the right hand of the Father. He, that is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation. To who? To all who obey him. To everyone who obeys him, to everyone who holds fast to Jesus in faith, Jesus becomes the source of eternal salvation. The one who is the surpassing high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, became the source of of your eternal salvation. The salvation that comes with Jesus when he takes upon himself your sin issue and takes that up to God on your behalf is yours through faith. A faith which is seen in obedience to the word of God. Jesus is the high priest that you need. He is qualified in every single way. He was called and appointed by God. He identifies with you. And he's qualified to take up your sin issue with God and to God. And he does that by becoming sin for you, but also by sympathizing with you and understanding you and your struggles. So if you're not a Christian here today, you need Jesus. He can free you from the hold that sin has on your life. Turn from your sins and entrust yourself to him in faith. And if you are already a Christian, the encouragement here is to stay connected to Christ by faith. That's really the ongoing plea of this letter. Hold fast your confidence to Christ. Hold your confidence firm to the end. Hold fast to your confession. 
Why does he keep on saying that? Well, because Jesus is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that not only did you send Jesus to be our Lord, not only did you send Jesus to be our Savior, not only did you send Jesus to be our, our friend and our, our brother, but you also sent him to be our High Priest, the one who brings us into your presence, the one who allows us even to stand before you, the one who has dealt with our sin issue by being without sin, by suffering, by dying for us and instead of us. Lord, we thank you for the great gift of your Son, that he was made perfect. We're grateful for one who has gone before us in suffering. And we pray, our Father, that you might grant us faith to believe and the faith to hold fast to Jesus. And now may God supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.